Please turn with me in your Bibles to the Gospel of John, chapter 18. Our text this morning will be John chapter 18, verses 28 to 36. We are nearing the end of the Gospel of John. We are getting into uh, the passages in which we find our Lord being tried, being sentenced by the Jewish leaders. And now he is about to go before Pilate, who is the Roman governor. And though Pilate will indeed give in to the people, it seems as if Pilate would give him a little bit more of a, a fair trial, if it's okay to say that, than what the Jews did. He understands why it is that they have brought him to him. They know, or he knows rather, that it's out of envy. And yet, he... He does make attempts to try to free Jesus, but upon being threatened, he does give in to the crowds. And we will see that in the coming weeks as well. But there is in this passage, as we are going over this, a great contrast that does take place. Where you have the King Jesus, the King over all, the King of the universe, who is being tried who is being sentenced by an earthly ruler who is part of leading an earthly kingdom. You think of the kingdoms of the past and the grandeur of these kingdoms, not only of the Roman kingdom, the Roman empire, but some that we find within the scripture. You find the Assyrian empire, the Babylonian empire, the Persians, the Greeks, the Egyptians, you just think in the last thousand years of, of our own history, what kingdoms have arisen and been destroyed and, and all of that. They have ruled for a time and, and how magnificent that history will look upon these. These kingdoms of history past were all won through decisive victories over another kingdom. They were won through war. They were won through the weapons of men. These kingdoms, as great as they were, and we can look back on them and the things that they accomplished, perhaps, these were kingdoms that were earthly. These were kingdoms that, in, in which unrighteousness existed, deception, evil. Not only did we find that in those empires, but we find that in the empire of Israel as well, the kingdom of Israel. You think of this particular kingdom being established by the Lord, as he has brought them out of Egypt through the hand of Moses to come into their own land, the promised land, he establishes them this, this kingdom where he was their king. And then after a while, they would seek out earthly kings. And then you just go to the books of Kings, first and second Kings or first and second Chronicles. And you see that even within Israel, even before the, the, the two split into Israel and Judah when it was a united kingdom. There were still wickedness that went on and evil. Look at the line of kings that come thereafter and you have good kings and bad. Israel, as far as the northern kingdom, only had evil kings. But you think that even of, of all the great kingdoms of the world, that they still failed morally. Again, 
there was unrighteousness and evil and wickedness that ran rampant through many of these kingdoms. And you see that being demonstrated, the evil of earthly men and what is getting ready to happen here. And yet there's a great contrast, not only of the kingdoms that are trying to condemn the great king, but what he says about his own kingdom, a kingdom that we now experience and a kingdom that we look forward to when our Lord returns. This kingdom of Messiah is a kingdom in which only righteousness dwells, a kingdom in which we long for. This kingdom is ruled by Christ himself. This kingdom is, it stands in stark contrast to all the kingdoms of the earth, but it is indeed a present reality. It is not something that we look forward to necessarily. There is the, the, the components of the kingdom as far as the now and the not yet. Many would look to see the, the kingdom of Christ coming in the future, but they don't see the present reality of the kingdom of Christ, even now, of which we are privileged to enjoy the peace and the righteousness of being part of that kingdom. We will look and see what Christ himself says about his own kingdom and the implications of that toward us, what that means for us. Uh, the reality of that, even though we live in this particular nation, as other Christians live in their particular nations and countries, there is a universal uh, standard by which believers that are part of the kingdom of Christ are to adhere to. And we will look at some of those things this morning. If you would, please stand with me for the reading of God's word. <clears throat> We will read verses 28 to 36. This is the inspired, inerrant, authoritative, infallible words of the living God. Let us give our attention to the Holy Scripture. Then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium, and it was early. And they themselves did not enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Therefore Pilate went out to them and said, what accusation do you bring against this man? And they answered and said to him, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So Pilate said to them, Take him yourselves and judge him according to your, to your law. The Jews said to him, We are not permitted to put anyone to death to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Therefore Pilate entered again into the praetorium and summoned Jesus and said to him, Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus answered, Are you saying this on your own initiative, or did others tell you about me? Pilate answered, I am not a Jew, am I? Your own nation and the chief priests delivered you to me. What have you done? Jesus answered, My kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this realm. Let's pray together. Gracious God, thank you for this portion of your word. And may the Holy Spirit of God apply it to our hearts, giving us understanding that we may carry out the things that we learn today. That you would be honored in our lives, honored in our conduct. Guide our thoughts, and may Christ be magnified this day among your people. 
Bless the preaching of your word. May it accomplish all you desire. In Jesus' name we pray. And all God's children said, amen. Please be standing. As we had talked about beforehand in the past couple of weeks, John does not record for us Jesus' trial before Caiaphas and the Sanhedrin. He does, of course, make mention of after Jesus' arrest being taken to Annas, who was also regarded as the high priest, who was the father-in-law of Caiaphas. Uh, no doubt John is probably anticipating that his readers would know about the other synoptic gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John really fills in a lot of the details of things that they didn't write about. And again, just to, just to say this in passing, that the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John are not meant to be exhaustive biographies of Christ. They are meant to convey to us his life and ministry of certain aspects that each thought was, was important to his life and ministry, but they are not to be exhaustive biographies. John as we, when we started the book, really emphasizes much of the deity of Christ more so than the others and gives certain accounts that the others do not. And, and some of these help to fill in the gaps, help to fill in things that the other writers did not express to us or express to the readers. So though John doesn't mention the fact of Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, he anticipates it. Because in verse 28, he says very clearly, then they led Jesus from Caiaphas into the praetorium. So he recognizes absolutely that not only did Jesus go to Annas, but that he did go before Caiaphas and then from Caiaphas on to Pilate into the praetorium. Uh, this is probably... Uh, the praetorium being the fortress of Antonia, which was in the northwest corner of the temple area, where a garrison would be stationed, where rooms were at, where Pilate himself probably stayed. So it's not a lot of travel here. It's going from Annas, who is probably in one chamber of the temple court, over to Caiaphas, who is gathered with the Sanhedrin in the other part of the temple court, then on to Pilate himself. Now you think of this. You think of the hypocrisy of these men. Now it isn't so difficult for us to understand. We see a lot of the things that they are doing thus far. But these are supposed, it goes back to this. These are supposed to be the leaders of Israel. These are supposed to be the spiritual leaders of Israel, guiding the people into truth, teaching them the law of God, teaching them to obey the Lord. All of these things, and you see what great hypocrisy that they have in the fact that they had already planned to kill Jesus. That was already part of the plan whenever he, he made his triumphal entry. We need to get rid of him. You see throughout the mockery of a trial that we went over the past couple of weeks of how they were breaking many of their own laws by having Jesus arrested in the way that they did, having this trial by night. The high priest leading the charge, though he was supposed to keep silent. Unanimous vote to put him to death, on and on th that it went. And not only that, but even after all the evil that they're doing, paying a man, Judas, to betray him so that they could arrest him, all of this, they lead Jesus to the praetorium where Pilate is at, which would be known as perhaps a Gentile building a gentile structure but they did not enter into the praetorium 
so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, what kind of hypocrisy is that? We're going to do anything that is necessary in order to kill this man. We're going we're gonna to pay people to betray him. We're going to have this trial over the, the cover of night and all of this. But we do have standards. Let's not enter into the place of the Gentiles so that we can eat the Passover. We don't want to be defiled. The hypocrisy of men really knows no bounds. Again, they will do whatever is necessary to accomplish whatever their desires are while maintaining their own standards of righteousness, their own standards of goodness. It's no wonder that Jesus, and, and, and if you're reading throughout the Gospel of Matthew, and it seems like Jesus really just has some harsh words to these men, but what he is indeed doing is exposing them to be who they are. In chapter 23 of Matthew Verse 13, it begins, Jesus is saying this right, right to the people, right to the, the leaders. But woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of heaven from people. For you do not enter in yourselves, nor do you allow others, nor do you allow those who are entering to go in. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you devour widows' houses, and for a pretense you make long prayers, therefore you will receive greater condemnation. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you travel around on sea and land to make one proselyte, and when he becomes one, you make him twice as much a son of hell as yourselves. Woe to you, blind guides, who say, whoever swears by the temple, that is nothing, but whoever swears by the gold of the temple, that is obligated. You fools and blind men, which is more important, the gold? Or the temple that sanctified the gold. And it goes on. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites. And you think of that man. He's, he's being very, very harsh here. Calling them out. They're, they're whitewashed tombs. Full of dead men's bones. All of that language that Jesus uses. And the things that he said to the people before he even got to them. Things that he said to the people warning them of who these people are before he ever turned his attention to them. And it is no wonder that they wanted to kill him. How, they, how he was threatening their position, threatening their status, threatening their authority. So they're going to do whatever is necessary. But how hypocritical. Not to step foot into the place in which the Gentiles are dwelling. For fear that they would be defiled. Most likely, that was probably just an, an, outward, an outward thing. Just so the people would know that they didn't enter in. So they could still maintain an outward appearance of righteousness. They do these things on the outside so that people see it. And people can see, wow, they're, really, they're, they're doing everything right. They're still following the laws. Not knowing what they did under the cover of night. When no one else was around. Except them. That is the definition of a hypocrite. That is, that is a demonstration of what it is to be a hypocrite, rather. You pretend to be something in front of people, but then when you're by yourself or you're with others who are uh, like yourself, you're a totally different person. The 
They like to make long prayers. They like the attention. They like people to know that they're fasting. You know, they like to know. They like people to know when they're giving the alms. All of this, and this is another example that they would not enter into this place just for the outward appearance. That's all it was for. These truly are hypocrites. They are wicked men. For wicked men do this very thing. And sometimes we find ourselves doing similar things. We like to pretend, or rather not necessarily pretend, but we like to put on a certain persona in front of people that would be different when we get away from them. We need to, we need to indeed be genuine and who we are, and who we are, we'll come. We'll talk about that later. But just suffice it to say, right now, who we are is our image bearers of God, who have been granted this 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 faith and this salvation in our Lord. And so He says to us, "Walk worthy of our calling. Act as kingdom citizens, citizens of the kingdom." And this is who we are to be. We strive for that. We often fail. We're going to fail. That's, 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 that's a truth. That, that's a reality. But we don't continue to do those things. We seek to do right. And, and we, we're honest about our failures. I can't remember who it was. I heard somebody preaching. It was one of the well-known gentlemen that we, we often listen to. And he was preaching and he was talking about how... He had, in his sermon, he had disclosed to the congregation that he was preaching to of some of his own failures and struggles. And he had another pastor who was the pastor of that church or who was one who mentored him to come up to him after the service was done and say, don't ever do that. Don't ever tell people your own failures and struggles. You know, that, that'll give them, that, that, won't, that won't help them to have hope. If you tell them yours, you're supposed to be on, on this level or you're supposed to present this kind of a, a life. But just being honest with ourselves, regardless of what position we hold or don't hold, we're honest about who we are in our, are in our genuine struggles with one another. In our genuine struggles, rather, with, with what each of us endure in this life. We're honest. We don't put on for anybody. We don't act as if we're better than another. We recognize our shortcomings and our failures. We recognize our struggles with sin. We recognize the corruption that still remains within us. And then we, we share that with each other so that we can pray for one another. We're not to be like the hypocrites. Not true hypocrites. That is something that is... Uh, that does occur within the umbrella of Christianity, sadly. It's like, I don't want to go too far here, but I can't help this. It's like you, you have people, when they get up, when, when you talk to them, it's like they talk one way, general conversation. But as soon as that one steps behind the pulpit, his pronunciations of Lord and God and everything else changes. Long drawn out, the Lord, or God, or whatever. And it's like they, they do this sort of thing, and it's like 
this isn't in general conversation. What are you doing? Just say the word. Well, why do they do that? Because they're putting on something for the rest of the people. There's no need for that. We express what the word of God says. We seek to adhere to it the best that we can while recognizing our own failures and our own shortcomings. But we seek to be genuine in our walk with Christ. Now, to say, I would like to just pinpoint something real quick, and I don't want to spend too much time on it, but just so there's no confusion, it is that last statement of John in verse 28. They didn't want to enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover. Now, this could present a problem. For wasn't it the night before that Jesus and his disciples ate the Passover? So what exactly is being referred to here when the religious leaders don't want to be defiled so that they can eat the Passover? Well, John is not in conflict with the Synoptic Gospels. He's not trying to say that the Passover didn't happen yet, or perhaps that the meal that Jesus had the night before with his disciples wasn't the Passover, because Matthew, Mark, and Luke state very clearly that Jesus ate the Passover meal with his disciples. Some have proposed a number of different scenarios, such as, you know, maybe there was a difference in, in, in the timing. You know, the Pharisees adhered to one particular time that they were to eat the, the Passover, the Sadducees had disagreed and the Sadducees ate the Passover on the next day because they couldn't agree exactly on what day it was supposed to be. All kinds of things like that. And while some adhere to that, some well-known theologians adhere to that, I think if we just look at the, the scripture itself, we can come to an understanding of what this is referring to. John is not in conflict with Matthew, Mark, or Luke. And, uh, and I hope that we will all see that just by looking at the scripture. Now, I would like to start, and you can jot these down. I'll try to go through them quickly because I don't want to take up too much time, but I do want to try to address this for us. In Exodus chapter 12, <clears throat> I'm going to read verses 1 to 6 and then start in verse 16 and following, or 14 and following. Exodus chapter 12, this is when the Passover was instituted. Now the Lord said to Moses and Aaron in the land of Egypt, This month shall be the beginning of months for you. It is to be the first month of the year to you. Speak to all the congregation of Israel, saying, On the tenth of this month they are each, each one to take a lamb for themselves according to their father's households, a lamb for each household. Now if the household is too small for a lamb... Then he and his neighbor nearest to his house are to take one according to the number of persons in them. According to what each man should eat, you are to divide the lamb. Your lamb shall be an unblemished male, a year old. You may take it from the sheep or from the goats. You shall keep it until the 14th day of the same month. Then the whole assembly of the congregation of Israel is to kill it at twilight on the 14th day of the month. Skip down to verse 14. 
Now this day will be a memorial to you, and you shall celebrate it as a feast to the Lord. Throughout your generations, you are to celebrate it as a perpetual ordinance, a permanent ordinance. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. This is the institution of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. I'm sorry. Seven days you shall eat unleavened bread, but on the first day you shall remove leaven from your houses. For whoever eats anything leavened from the first day until the seventh day, that person shall be cut off from Israel. On the first day you shall have a holy assembly and another holy assembly on the seventh day. No work at all shall be done on them except what must be eaten by every person that that alone may be prepared for you. You shall observe the feast of unleavened bread, for on this very day I brought your host out of the land of Egypt. Therefore you shall observe this day throughout your generations as a permanent ordinance. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month, at evening, you shall eat unleavened bread until the twenty-first day of the month at evening. Seven days there shall be no leaven found in your houses, for whoever eats what is leavened, that person shall be cut off from the congregation of Israel, whether he is an alien or a native of the land. So we have the institution of this. And the Lord says that the month of Abib, or after the Babylonian captivity, Nisan, I think is how it's pronounced. I wouldn't want to say Nisan. It's not a vehicle. But we'll say Nisan is the, the title of it after the Babylonian captivity. It's the same month. But the Passover is to occur on the 14th day of the month. But on the same day, this is when they are to remove all the unleavened bread. Anything leavened. Or they're to remove all the leaven from, from the bread and eat only unleavened bread. So these two particular feasts are so close together. The Passover on one day, on the 15th day, the, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began the very next day. Now, a lot of times within Scripture, we find that these two days are referred to by one name or the other, but referring to the whole. So in Second Chronicles, chapter 35, listen to how this is described. <clears throat> So in verse 16, 2 Chronicles 35. So all the service of the Lord was prepared on that day to celebrate the Passover and to offer burnt offerings on the altar of the Lord according to the command of King Josiah. Thus the sons of Israel who were present celebrated the Passover at that time in the Feast of Unleavened Bread seven days. Now it's mentioned, right? But it goes on to say, there had not been celebrated a Passover like it in Israel since the days of Samuel the prophet, nor had any of the kings of Israel celebrated such a Passover as Josiah did with the priest, the Levites, all Judah and Israel who were present, and the inhabitants of Jerusalem. In the 18th year of Josiah's reign, this Passover was celebrated. It makes mention of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, but the main emphasis is the Passover in, in, in the Gospels themselves. In Matthew chapter 26, Matthew chapter 26, verse 17. Now, listen to what he says here. Now, on the first day of unleavened bread, 
the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to prepare for you to eat the Passover? On the first day of unleavened bread is what it's referred to, but the question is about the Passover. Where are we going to eat the Passover? But Matthew refers to it as the first day of unleavened bread. In Mark chapter 14, beginning in verse 12, it's the same thing. On the first day of unleavened bread, when the Passover lamb was being sacrificed, his disciples said to him, Where do you want us to go and prepare for you to eat the Passover? It's the same thing. They're interchangeable. They're used of each other. And then Luke chapter 22 Luke 22, verses 1 and 2. Now the feast of unleavened bread, which is called the Passover, was approaching. The chief priests and the scribes were seeking how they might put him to death, for they were afraid of the people. And then in verse 15, or actually verse 14, this is when they're having the Passover. When the hour had come, he reclined at the table and the apostles with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. So, Jesus is referring to his meal with the disciples as the Passover. The writers of scripture are calling the day of the Passover the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And so they're used interchangeably. In Acts chapter 12, another instance, and then we'll move on a little bit there. Acts chapter 12, verses 1 to 4. Now about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword. When he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. Now it was during the days of unleavened bread. When he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people. So they're used interchangeably to refer to each other. The Passover is referred to as the Feast of Unleavened Bread. And then the Feast of Unleavened Bread is referred to as the Passover. Because one began on the 14th day, the Feast of Unleavened Bread began on the 15th day. Now, a difficulty that we run into, and this will come later, but in the Gospel of John, in chapter 19, we have this statement as well. In verse 14, that also can cause us a little bit of difficulty. Verse 14 of chapter 19, this is the day that Jesus is being crucified. Now, it was the day of preparation for the Passover. It was about the sixth hour, and he said to the Jews, Behold, your king. So what is meant here? The preparation of the Passover. Again, the Passover was the night before. So what are we to make of this? The language helps us to understand a little bit more. In Mark chapter 15, for example, Matthew says the same thing, but we'll look at Mark and then Luke. Mark chapter 15. 
Verse 42. When evening had already come, because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath. Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God, and he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. This is on the preparation day, which is the day before the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 23, verse 54, it says the same language. It was the preparation day, and the Sabbath was about to begin. Now the women had come with him out of Galilee followed. Now the women who had come with him out of Galilee followed and saw the tomb and how his body was laid. So what is John referring to then the preparation of the Passover? He's simply just making the statement that the preparation day in which Jesus died was the week of Passover. That's all he's saying. So when we're looking then at the timeline of everything, the the Passover actually took place the night that Jesus ate it with his disciples, as what we understand. And then the next day, the day in which Christ himself was crucified, was the preparation day, which would be Friday before the Sabbath began, which was also the first day of unleavened bread. The day that the Feast of Unleavened Bread began is the day that Christ was crucified. The Passover was the day before. So, when we're looking at those instances in which we have that language of the Passover and the Feast of Unleavened Bread both being interchanged there, that's all that John is putting before us in verse 28. That the religious leaders didn't want to enter into the praetorium so that they would not be defiled, but might eat the Passover, which would be a reference to the holy uh, convocation, the holy feast that they were to have that day in regards to the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, seeing how the scripture uses this language, looking at the timeline of everything, there's no difficulties in reconciling what John is saying with reconciling it with the other gospel writers. The day in which Christ is being crucified is the preparation day of the Sabbath, but it is also the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread. So, moving along there, I did want to address that for us so that we would understand there's no difficulties between the accounts. So, seeing the hypocrisy of these men, they go to Pilate, Pilate, no doubt, would have probably come out onto the porch area to speak to them. And Pilate goes and, and, and he confronts them. What accusation do you bring against this man? And the word that they answered to him was, If this man were not an evildoer, we would not have delivered him to you. So what are they saying? They are already beginning this intimidation process with Pilate. Already saying, basically being very sarcastic to him. We wouldn't have brought him to you if he weren't an evildoer. So obviously we have charges against this man. And they're going to use that in order to, to pressure him to, to crucify Christ. Pilate, upon hearing this, says to them, look, take him yourselves. 
Judge him according to your own law. You see that unrighteousness that is, that is dwelling not only with Israel itself, but also with the Roman Empire. These men are bringing these false charges against Christ because they intend on putting him to death by a certain means. Otherwise, they could have taken him out like they did Stephen. Remember Stephen in the book of Acts? Stephen, they charge him with blaspheming. What do they do? They just drag him out of the city and they begin to stone him. But they don't want to do this. They're not interested in stoning Jesus. They want him to be hung up, crucified, to fulfill the scripture is what we understand where the scripture would say, everyone who hangs, cursed is everyone who hangs on a tree. This is the worst death that they could think of, and this is the one they want him to experience. But at the very same time, interestingly, by the sovereign hand of God, this is the exact death that Jesus himself is desiring to happen. We're not permitted to put anyone to death. So let's bring him to the Romans for the purpose that he is going to experience this kind of death. And this, as John says, is to fulfill the word of Jesus, which he spoke, signifying by what kind of death he was about to die. Jesus had already said this, that he would be crucified, handed over to the chief priests and scribes to be beaten and then crucified. This is what the Old Testament had already told us. In, in Psalm 22, they pierced my hands and my feet. As, the, as the, the book of Zechariah says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. This is the plan of God. This is the death that he is to die. But in the means, the, the means that, is, that are being used to bring this about is by unrighteous governors and unrighteous, unrighteous men. Who only desire their own earthly grandeur. Their own earthly status. And you see that there's no justice here. Pilate is going to eventually give in. The Jews are bringing false charges against him. There's no justice here. They're not trying to seek out what is good and right. And yet this is what exists within this kingdom and in the kingdom of Rome. As, as great as we can look back and see, they are full of, of evil and wickedness. Unrighteousness. Moral corruption is what is taking place here. You know, it's, it's interesting that they would rather uh, be morally corrupt than ceremonially unclean. We don't want to enter into that building because we don't want to be ceremonially unclean. But we're not too, con you know, we're, we, we don't think too much of being morally unclean. We're not concerned with that. Pilate, he enters into the praetorium and he summons Jesus to himself. And it's almost as if he looks over Jesus and he says, are you the king of the Jews? It's almost, you can see that kind of a tone with it. As Pilate is looking at Jesus, not as a, a great rival, but as a humble man standing before him. And he says, are you the, you the king? You're the king of the Jews. They brought you to me. And it's almost an indictment on the religious leaders. So are you the king of the Jews? There's, a, there's really two thoughts 
uh, to, to look at this question and Jesus' answer. Jesus responds to say, are you saying this on your own initiative or did others tell you this about me? Why would he answer in that kind of a way? Because there's a yes and no element to this, this question. Are you the king of the Jews? Well, if you're going by their definition, no. Are you asking me on your own initiative? Then yes. I'm not the king that they define me to be. I'm not the political ruler who is going to bring about this, this, great, uh, this great battle with Rome to deliver the people as what they would believe the earthly Messiah was to do. We're not gathering up arms. We're not doing any of these things. But if you ask me if I am a king, then the answer is yes. He's, he's, he's defining, even in, the, in the, the small answers that he gives, he's, he's defining who he is and what he had come to do. He's really disarming Pilate in one sense and not giving him any excuse to condemn him, though he's going to anyway, because he's going to give in to the people. Pilate responds with his words, I'm not a Jew, am I? I don't go by their definitions. I'm not influenced by them. Why would I, why would I know? They brought you to me. So what have you done? So if the charge then is to be an insurrectionist, they're, they're gathering up an army, whatever, to throw, throw Rome off of them. Jesus really disarms him with what he says about his own kingdom. Now, what Jesus says about his own kingdom will disarm Pilate and will clarify much about his own kingdom. But it will also be something for us to look at and to, to reflect upon. Jesus doesn't answer the question, what have you done? Jesus just says, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, then my servants would be fighting so that I would not be handed over to the Jews. But as it is, my kingdom is not of this world. Now, this word for kingdom, basileia, basileia in Greek, it it has more overtones of reign and kingship rather than territory. So what is Jesus saying? My kingship is not of this world. My reign is not of this world. Otherwise, my servants would be fighting. My kingdom is, is not originated from, from the temporary earth as what yours is. And every other kingdom that is in existence. Again, how do they come about? They come about through war. They come about through decisive victories over another nation or another country. That's how they're established. By the weapons of men. And Jesus disarms all that to say my kingship and my rule is not of this world. It's not like yours. Otherwise they would be fighting. Now, hold that thought for just a moment <clears throat> and turn with me to Daniel chapter 2. In Daniel chapter 2, 
Daniel interprets the, the dream of King Nebuchadnezzar. We'll look at verses 31 to 35, and then we'll jump to verse 44. Listen to what he says here. You, O king, were looking, and behold, there was a single great statue. That statue, which was large and of extraordinary splendor, was standing in front of you, and its appearance was awesome. The head of that statue was made of fine gold, its breast and its arms of silver, its belly and its thighs of bronze, its legs of iron, its feet partly of iron and partly of clay. You continued looking until a stone was cut out without hands, and it struck the statue on its feet of iron and clay and crushed them. Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed all at the same time and became like chaff from the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them was found. But the stone that struck the statue became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. Skip to verse 44. In the days of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which will never be destroyed. And that kingdom will not be left for another people. It will crush and put an end to all these kingdoms. But it will itself endure forever. Inasmuch as you saw that a stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it crushed the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God has made known to the king what will take place in the future. So the dream is true, and its interpretation is trustworthy. Now, in Daniel chapter 2, Daniel interprets a dream that Nebuchadnezzar has. Now, these four components of this particular statue that he sees, the gold, the silver, the bronze, the, the iron, and the clay, are representative of four kingdoms. Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. These are the same four kingdoms that are referenced in chapter 7 of the four beasts that, that Daniel sees. Of Babylon, Persia, Greece, and Rome. Now, it is in the days of those kings, according to Daniel, that the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Messiah, will be established. It starts out as a small rock that was cut out of a mountain, not made with hands. It, it's cast at the statue, then it itself grows into a great mountain filling the entire earth. Now, in chapter 7 of Daniel, when you have the vision of the four beasts, you have... Have him speaking of each of these beasts and, and the description, the characteristics of each. And then you have a reference again to the establishing of Messiah's kingdom. Chapter 7, verse 13. I kept looking in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, one like a son of man was coming. And he came up to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion, glory, and a kingdom, that all the peoples, nations, and men of every language might serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which will not pass away, and his kingdom is one which will not be destroyed. This is again referencing the kingdom of Christ, the kingdom of Messiah, being set up in the days of those kings and the days of those empires. And in fact, in chapter 7, what we're looking at is what occurred after the ascension of Christ. One like unto the Son of Man is coming with the clouds of heaven. He's not coming to earth. He's going to the Ancient of Days. 
And when he's presented before the Ancient of Days, the very passage of Scripture that Richard read this morning for Revelation chapter 5 is, is exactly what we're reading also in Daniel 7. We're reading of the ascension of Christ and the coronation of Christ. Having completed his, his work, he has become the king. He, he, Psalm 110 says, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Jesus is king. He is sitting on his throne and he is ruling and reigning even now. And you read what Christ, some of the things that Jesus himself had said about his kingdom, not only of this kingdom, not being of this world, but Jesus himself preached what? Repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's not 2,000 years down the road. It's not 3,000 years down the road or 4,000 or whatever. He says it's near. And then he goes on to say the kingdom of heaven is in your midst. And then he says the kingdom of heaven has come upon you. So what are we looking at then? Jesus is establishing the very kingdom that Daniel had prophesied of in chapter 2 and chapter 7. When he ascends into heaven, he's going to sit at the right hand of the majesty on high is what is said in numerous passages of scripture. Having completed his work, he receives glory, power, dominion that all peoples, nations, and tongues should serve him. And not only that, but in Psalm 110, which we went over a couple Wednesdays ago. Listen to all the things that are said here. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. The Lord will stretch forth your strong scepter from Zion, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will volunteer freely in the day of your power in holy array from the womb of the dawn. Your youth are to you as the dew. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings in the day of his wrath. He will judge among the nations. He will fill them with corpses. He will shatter the chief men over a broad country. He will strike from the brook by the wayside. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This psalm is speaking of the present reign of our Lord Jesus. This isn't a reign that is taking place in the new heavens and the new earth. That is the full manifestation of the kingdom. Yes. But he says in Psalm 110, rule in the midst of your enemies. What is he referring to? He's referring to the present time in which he has ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, ruling and reigning and accomplishing all that he sets forth to do, even in the midst of his enemies who try to tear their fetters away as what Psalm 2 says, and the Lord laughs and scoffs at them. He's established his king on his holy mountain, and the nations are his inheritance. All of these scriptures, looking at all of them together, is presenting for us the present reality of the reign of Christ in this present time. We're not waiting for Jesus to be king. We're not waiting for him to be crowned king. As I've shared with you beforehand, one of my family members had talked me into going to a tent revival. This has been, you know, seven, eight years ago. Maybe longer than that. You know which one I'm talking about. And... So get there, they got a huge choir up there and they're singing and, and they kept singing this last verse. And I promise you, they, they sung it at least four or five times. 
one right after the other of the same verse of Scripture. Or not, excuse me, not of Scripture, of that particular song. And the verse had in it, I want to be there when they crown him king. And it kept going on. I want to be there when they crown him king. And you're just going to. It already happened. And you weren't there. That's what you want to say. Because the present reality is that when he ascended into heaven, having completed his work, he was crowned king then. This isn't a future thing. It's now. So the implications of that is, is that Christ is ruling over his creation. He is accomplishing all that he sets forth to do even now. And the way in which Christ himself is putting all his enemies under his feet. And as Paul will say in 1 Corinthians 15, the last enemy is death. The way that he does it is not by the weapons of men. It's not by warfare. It's what we've seen in history with every other kingdom. Christ is conquering through the message of the gospel. That's how he conquers. And I know that we may have differing views when it comes to the book of Revelation and all of that. But when you're looking in Revelation 20 and you're seeing all the thrones and those that sit upon the thrones and they they come alive and they, they reign with Christ for a thousand years, that Christ is reigning during that thousand year period is speaking of the church age. Because when you're looking there in that passage, John sees the souls of them that were slain for the word of God. He doesn't see glorified bodies as what happens after the resurrection or after the rapture, whatever you want to call it. He sees the souls of them. And that wording of thrones is used over 40 times in the book of Revelation and always with a few exceptions, speaking of the throne of Satan in the first couple chapters, it always refers to a heavenly scene, not an earthly one. So Revelation 20 is speaking of the current reign of Christ and the saints that are privileged to, to and I say privileged, we look at it as a, as a terrible thing because we, we miss our, our family members. But think of the, the glorious the glorious reality that awaits them when they, when they go to heaven after they die is that they are ruling and reigning with Christ right now. And as the church is still on the earth, the church militant is what theologians would call it because we're in that warfare of, of not the same warfare, of course, as what we're talking about a moment ago, but the, the warfare of tearing down strongholds and every lofty thing that exalts itself against the knowledge of God. The weapons of our warfare are not carnal is what he says. But you see the church putting forth the gospel and preaching the gospel. And you see in Revelation chapter 6 of the rider on the white horse, this isn't the Antichrist. This is Christ who is the conqueror, who is the one who has overcome, who is conquering through the gospel. This is how he conquers, through the preaching of the word of God, through the preaching of the gospel. Think of how this started. This started with Christ himself and 12 guys. Twelve imperfect men. 
Judas went the way that he did, but they replaced him. And then the Apostle Paul comes next. They turned the known world upside down. So that in a span of 300 years, beginning with 12 guys, the Roman Empire that was once persecuting them adopts the Christian faith. That's crazy talk. But that's what happened. Every emperor that was there before was persecuting the people of God. But then at God's appointed time, through the spreading of the gospel, the empire that was once persecuting them is now conquered by the gospel. Does that mean that everybody was actually a believer? Does that mean that, that everything went as it should have went and all that? No. I'm not saying that it wasn't a perfect scenario, but just think of the influence. Even in the life of the Apostle Paul, that the gospel was reaching even into Caesar's household. That is the power of God, not by weapons of warfare, but the power of God through the preaching of the gospel. That's what he accomplishes. And this kingdom of which we are now part of, is a kingdom that is ruled and reigned by righteousness and by truth and by peace. That's what Paul says. He says the kingdom of heaven is not eating and drinking, but it's righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. That is a present reality that we are privileged to experience. Because our king is the sovereign king who is altogether righteous. Who does according to his will in the hosts of heaven and on the earth. This is a kingdom in which only righteousness dwells, is what Peter says in 2 Peter 3. And the full manifestation of this kingdom, yes, is, is to come. And when it does come, then we can see the full glory of what we're now experiencing. But in the meantime, before that day comes, there are many passages to look at. And I know we're kind of running out of time there. But a number of passages... Like in James, for example, James chapter 2, he says, so, so act as those who would be judged by the, the law of liberty. The law of liberty, which is the law of God, which is the moral law of God that God has granted to his church. This is the law by which we conduct ourselves throughout this life because we know that it's pleasing to God. Looking at the Decalogue, the Ten Commandments, for example. We have this language that is used by the Apostle Paul in numerous passages, but here's one. In Philippians chapter 1, verse 27, Only conduct yourselves in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or remain absent, I will hear that you are standing firm in one spirit with one mind, striving together for the faith of the gospel. In no way alarmed by your opponents, which is a sign of destruction for them, but of salvation for you, and that too from God. For to you it has been granted... For Christ's sake, not only to believe in him, but also to suffer for his name's sake. Experiencing the same conflict which you saw in me, and now here to be in me. We conduct ourselves as citizens of this kingdom. That is the present reality of which we are part of. And think of this kingdom of Christ. It, it spans the globe. There is no kingdom like it. It is in every Nation, every country, it's around the entire world. This kingdom that started out as a small stone and now has grown into a great mountain and continues to grow every day. And we have a standard by which our king has given to us 
that we conduct ourselves in this life, and it is the law of liberty, the royal law, the word of God. We conduct ourselves in a manner that is worthy of the gospel. This is how we are to live. This is how we are to interact with the world is through the lens of the scripture. We engage the world by the truths of scripture. We live out our lives by the truth of scripture. Recognizing that regardless of what we endure in this life, it has no bearing on the kingdom of heaven. Whether we suffer, we're persecuted, and who knows what the Lord will do through our suffering and through our persecutions. Just as he did in the early days of the church, the Roman Empire is conquered. Who knows what the Lord can do, even through the pain and suffering of his people that will be used to bring about whatever his glorious intention is. But in the meantime, let us conduct ourselves as citizens of the kingdom. That's why we pray your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We are part of something that is so magnificent, so astonishing, so remarkable. We don't necessarily look for it just to, to have the hope in what is to come. That's true, we do. But think of what you are privileged to experience now by being part of this kingdom that is not of this world. Being part of a kingdom in which our king reigns not from any earthly city, but from his throne in the heavens. It's amazing. Let's conduct ourselves as citizens of that kingdom. Let's pray together. Gracious God and our Father, thank you once again for this portion of your word. And Father, let us understand and see the reality of your kingdom that is here and now. And what a privilege it is to be transferred from the kingdom of darkness, the domain of darkness, to the kingdom of your beloved Son. Father, let us indeed try to live our lives in such a way that honors our King. Help us in our failures. Help us in our shortcomings. Uh, may we indeed continue to strive all the days of our life to overcome what we struggle with. Never to give in but to keep striving that you'd be honored in the warfare that we have with our own self. Oh, Father, do a great work in us and let us behold the majesty of our King with eyes of faith. To you be the praise, the glory, and the honor. In Jesus' name we pray.